Good morning. You may have heard of back row Baptists, but have you heard of front row freshmen? Up here, look at this row over here. It's legit. They are bringing it today. If you have been around Overland longer than a week, you'll know that our lead pastor, Zach, loves to run. He loves to run, which is good because I hate to run. I despise it. But I have a lot of respect for who like to people. I have a lot of respect for people who like to run, especially long distances. Last year, Zach ran over 1,500 miles. It's crazy impressive, and that's something that I hope that I never have to do ever. <laughs> yes, amen. Uh, I I do love playing sports, though. I love sports. Hockey is nearest and dearest to me, uh, but but. With the sports I like to play, I don't really care about the running aspect because I'm doing something else. I'm playing the sport. I'm not thinking about the misery that is running. But when I'm just running by myself, all I can think about is how awful it is. So good for you if you're a long-distance runner. I don't know how you do it. And back in my college years, I had some friends of mine, some close friends, uh, invite me to run a 12-mile race. I was like, bro, that's 11 miles more than I'm trying to run right now. But... I did it. I, si- I said yes, and it was more than just a race. It was the Tough Mudder. Uh, and you may have heard of it before, but the Tough Mudder is a 12-mile race, and throughout those 12 miles, there's 24 different obstacles. And you're up in the mountains, so you're at a high elevation up in Beaver Creek, Colorado, and the race is just designed to test your, your mental grit, your endurance, your strength. It's designed to test the teamwork. And I remember one of the obstacles was there was this giant pool of ice and water. And you have to jump in and submerge yourself, and you have to trek across this massive pool with this big barrier in the middle. You have to go back under the water, pop out the other side, and just keep trekking through this ice water. It was awful. It was an adrenaline rush. And there are other obstacles like climbing and scaling walls, climbing nets, like greased up monkey bars. There's a lot of really fun obstacles. But the final obstacle that was required to cross the finish line uh, is called electroshock therapy. And it's as bad as it sounds. Essentially, it's just this field of dangling wires with supposedly 10,000 volts running through them. And so to get to the finish line, you have to run through it, getting shocked as you run. And so our team of eight, we, we get up there and we're like, let's just link arms and let's just walk through it. Not run, let's just walk through it. And we do, and we make it. Many, many, many shocks later, uh, we finish. We crossed the finish line. We finished the Tough Mudder. And as I look back to that event and the 12 miles that I had to run and the 24 obstacles, I I was just thinking that I could not have done that without my team. I could not have crossed the finish line without the help of my team. It was because of them, it was because of their presence that gave me strength and courage to to keep pressing forward, to move, to, to get it done, to finish the race. I had the courage and I had the strength that I needed because I was confident that my team was right there, pulling me through the mud, mud, helping me get over walls. They were right there with me, fighting beside me. And so today, we're starting a new book. We're starting the book of Joshua. We'll be here for about 10 to 12 weeks, uh, and it's it's a great book. I'm really excited to get into it. But today, we're going to see as we work through chapter 1, we're going to see, and this is our big truth for today, that strength, courage, and obedience 
are possible because our promise-keeping God goes before us, is with us, and is in us. So that's our big truth for today. And so as we get started, I'm going to give us an overview of the book of Joshua, help draw out some major themes that we're going to see as we go, and then we'll dive into chapter 1. So in the book of Joshua, we see God's faithfulness as God leads Israel into the promised land. We see time and time again that God comes through on his promises. And to better understand this book, we just need to quickly recap what has happened in the biblical story so far. Joshua is the first book after the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And in a way, Joshua helps to complete it. So in the first book of the Bible, the very first book of the Bible, we see God make a covenant with Abraham in Genesis. And a covenant is just simply an agreement between two parties. It can be conditional or it can be an unconditional covenant. So God enters into a covenant with Abraham. And we see this in Genesis chapter 12. And we read that God promised Abraham and his descendants that they would be blessed and that they would become a blessing to other nations. That they themselves would become a great nation and that they would be given land to dwell in. And this is also just undergirded by the reality that Israel, God's people, gets to experience a covenant relationship with the Lord their God. It's a big deal. And in these first five books of the Bible, we begin to see these promises start to get fulfilled. In the book of Exodus, we see the people of Israel, we see that they're enslaved in Egypt. And so God raises up a leader from within. He raises up Moses. And Moses leads the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And then we see God make a covenant with Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And this covenant sets the nation of Israel apart from all of the other nations. They are going to be a holy nation set apart. They are to be a light to other nations. And this covenant, uh, it's the blessings of the covenant are tied with the obedience of the people. And so, just as a, quickly, an aside, it's going to be, the law is going to reveal our need for a Savior. It's going to show us that we cannot measure up to what the law requires, and it's going to be Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. So we'll see that later, uh, but that's kind of what's going on here. And then we see Israel wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And they're just wrestling with this promise that they made to God to uphold all that he commanded. And they struggle with it time and time and time again. And at the end of the first five books of the Bible, at the end of the Pentateuch, we see Israel is camped outside of the promised land. They're so close. They're on the edge. They're on the plains of Moab. Not the cool camping spot in Utah. They're on the plains of Moab, and they are eagerly awaiting and anticipating their grand entrance into the promised lands. And the book closes with Moses' death. And when we turn the page, we get to Joshua, chapter 1, verse 1. And land is going to be a pretty big theme. You can already sense that. Land is going to be a big theme here in Joshua. But there are other themes that we could draw out as well. Uh, a notable one being rest. Once Israel enters the promised land, God is going to give them rest. We see another important theme of obedience to the law. This is important. The blessings of the land are associated with the obedience of the people of Israel. 
And lastly, we're going to see God's judgment through Israel as an instrument on a morally corrupt nation. Israel is going to battle the Canaanite nation. And these stories are going to be hard for us to read. Uh, They take up the sword against these nations. We'll, We'll wrestle through these stories as we go. And we see the Lord as the divine warrior who goes before Israel, who fights for his beloved people. And the book reads like an historical narrative account. But you can already sense that there's going to be a lot of action and drama in this story. It's actually, it's an epic story. But not like bro Chad epic, like that's epic man, but like epic in the most classic and literal sense of the word. It's going to be a nation that, that goes against many armies, fortified cities. Israel is staring down the face of war. It's a fight for their life. And so I invite you to just get wrapped up in these stories, to get wrapped up, to place yourself in the shoes of an Israelite who's standing on the shores of the Jordan River, thinking, how am I going to cross this river? Or, or place yourself in the shoes or sandals, rather, of an Israelite soldier as you're looking toward a fortified city, knowing that I'm about to go to war with them. This is part of our history. So get wrapped up in the, in the action and the suspense and the drama, the good, the evil, the heroism, the victories. Get wrapped up in these stories. It's part of our history. And understanding it is going to help us to treasure the reality that God is with us. It's going to help us to be obedient. And ultimately, it's going to help us to live Christ-honoring lives. So as we jump into chapter 1, you can go ahead and and grab your Bibles and turn there to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to break this passage down into two halves. The first half, we're going to see Joshua's commission from the Lord. And this will cover the first nine verses. And the second half, we're going to see Joshua's commands and his confirmation. That's going to be verses 10 through 18. And so... Uh, Before we jump in, you may have noticed our new sermon graphic that Taylor made for us. And and the sermon series title, you can kind of see it in the corner up there, but it's, oh there it is, God with us, God before us, and God in us. And throughout the book of Joshua, we are going to see that God was before them, that God was with Israel. But it's not until the New Testament and the New Covenant that we see the full realization that God is in us. Through Christ, God is in us. And we'll draw that out more later. But as a quick reminder, our big truth for today is that our strength and courage and obedience are possible because our promise-keeping God goes before us, is with us, and is in us. So let me go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 1, and you can follow along starting in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I have promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all of the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it. 
to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is a great section of scripture, is it not? In verse 1, it, it starts off by retelling of the death of Israel's former leader, Moses. You can think of verse 1 as the opening scene of a sequel to a major film. Because just before this, in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, we see that Moses died. And we see Israel weeping over their loss. And the book ends by honoring Moses as a great leader. And actually, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God had promised to Israel that he's going to raise up a new prophet like Moses to continue to communicate God's word to the people. And you see, Joshua is going to be commissioned as the new leader. And so there's this tension. Is, is he going to be the one that, that God had promised Israel? And spoiler alert, he's not the one. Is ultimately Jesus who's going to fulfill this prophecy as a new and greater Moses? But more on that later. But what's happening here is a chain uh, between the redemptive stories in the Bible that ultimately culminate in Jesus. You see, Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death, but in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, we see Joshua being raised up. In Joshua, or excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9, we read this. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the Holy Spirit of wisdom, of the Spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. So if you flip the page from Deuteronomy to Joshua, you'll see that the same thing is reiterated here. Moses' death is restated. Joshua is raised up and commissioned to be the new leader, to be the new Moses. And in the same way, the book of Joshua is actually going to end in a similar fashion. Joshua is going to die, and then the book of Judges is going to open by retelling Joshua's death. So the chain of redemption continues. And so we see that this baton is passed from Moses to Joshua. And I think I must love running analogies today because they're in this relay race, right? And Moses has taken Israel up to the edge of the promised land. And now he hands the baton off to Joshua. And Joshua is going to run this next segment and he's going to lead the people into the promised land to take possession of it. This is an exciting time for Israel. Is it not? There's been so much anticipation building throughout these stories. This is like Christmas morning for them. But it's also pretty daunting for them as well, if you think about it. Like they're, they're looking ahead to this flooded Jordan River that they have to cross somehow. They're looking forward to all these enemy nations that are awaiting them to, to battle against them. And so it's important just to note that, that Joshua has been groomed for this very task of leading the people. Joshua and Caleb were actually the only two adults from the previous generation who were permitted to enter the promised lands. Joshua was being prepared for military and spiritual leadership. As Moses' assistant, Joshua led troops, he exhibited courage, he served as a spy, he accompanied Moses to Mount Sinai, he assisted Moses at the tent of meeting, he called the people to trust God, and as we've already read, Joshua was full of the spirit of wisdom. 
So with that as kind of a, a backdrop, a glimpse into Joshua's past, we can kind of work through the passage now. Verse 2 says, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Here God is fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham. And there is an emphasis in this chapter that it is God who gives them the land. It is not a result of Israel's strategic thinking or their cunningness or their military tact. It's simply because God is giving the gift of the land to Israel. They need only to trust him, to obey him, and to take steps of faith. And verse 4 goes on to give some rough dimensions of the lands that they will conquer from the Canaanite nations. And we're going to see the specifics of the boundaries uh, in later chapters, and trust me, it's really, really detailed. But know that Israel is going to need to take up the sword. They're going to need to strike down these morally corrupt nations. And verse 5 goes on to say, God tells Joshua that no one will stand in the way. Just as I, your God, was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And he goes on, starting in verse 6. I'm just going to reread it because it's, it's so good. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, from the right to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it night and day, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so we see a repeated phrase in this section. Strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And as Joshua and, and Israel stand facing the enemies, they're going to need strength. They're going to need courage. Because if you think about it, they, they might start to get cold feet at this point. right? They're on the edge of the promised land. They're looking to it. There are some scary nations out there. And they're going to have to battle. You can see how they would start to doubt, start to second guess, start to wonder if God's promises are going to hold, hold true. God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous, but that can almost sound like an empty platitude if it's not grounded in something guaranteed. The reason that Joshua can be strong and courageous is not because he is the pinnacle of manliness, but simply because God is with him. The Lord tells him that just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. God is emphatically telling Joshua that he is with him. And when God is with you, that then enables you to have strength, to have courage. Joshua 1.9 is a hallmark verse. We see it on mugs, on t-shirts, on posters. We see it all over the place. And so it's just important to remember the context of this verse. God is speaking it to Joshua as he prepares to go to battle. And if you think about it, they're probably somewhat terrified. The, the Canaanite nation was a relentless, fierce people. 
Uh, they were very large individuals. And, and Israel, at one point, compares themselves to, to grasshoppers when standing next to the Canaanites. So put yourself in the shoes. You can, you can sense maybe the, the fear and anxiety that's happening here. And so God says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. And notice how that preposition, for, then grounds the command to not be frightened. You do not have to be frightened because the Lord your God is with you. And there's also something of importance here that we have to, to look at that God calls Joshua to do. God tells him to be careful to do all of the law. And here the law is likely referring to Deuteronomy, but could even include the first five books of the Bible. It's imperative that Joshua follows the Lord's instructions. God tells him not to stray from it. Do not turn to the right or to the left, but stay fixed on the law. Stay the course. The law is what's going to shape his character, his leadership. It's going to anchor his courage. He is to lead Israel according to the law. He is to meditate on it day and night. He is to chew on it to mutter it to himself as he goes throughout his days. And mere knowledge is not enough. Joshua must do it. And God tells Joshua that if you obey my law, it will make your way prosperous and successful. And by no means does success mean a worldly success in this instance. Success here for Joshua is to complete his God-given mandate to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and to obey the law. This is an epic story, a story of a nation facing up against armies, staring into the face of war. And it wasn't that Joshua just pulled himself up by his bootstraps, that he just willed it, had enough courage and might of his own accord. No, Joshua got his courage and strength from the Lord. He understood where it came from. I think so often... We, living the American dream, just want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We just want to get it done on our own accord. We think, it, you know, if I just work hard enough, if I tell myself I'm good enough, if I think about it enough, I can just will myself to do it. We think that we have courage, but I think that's a shallow courage rooted in our own will and capacity. Or on the flip side of that, Perhaps you're someone that when you are faced with a big task, with a major responsibility, you start to get overwhelmed, and you start to break down in fear and weakness, and, and, and you lack courage. Or, when you are facing something awful, when you are facing a hardship, how, how do you respond? Do you respond with courage? When you are staring down loss and grief, someone that you love just passed away, when you're staring down a diagnosis of, of, of someone that you love or yourself, when you're staring down broken and failed relationships that are fractured, that seem beyond repair, when you're staring down depression and anxiety, how do you respond? You see, in all of these situations, we need courage. Whether it's looking down the barrel of a major task or looking down the barrel of a major hardship. We need courage. We need real courage. And we can look to Joshua to see where his courage comes from. 
Joshua meditated on the law. He chewed on the law day and night. It is in the scriptures that we learn who God is. It is here where we behold the Lord in all of his glory. It is here where we get to see the big picture, that we see a holy and a just and a righteous and a good God, and yet at the same time we see how deep the Father's love is for us. It is here that we are prepared for battle, that we are molded and shaped. Our courage and strength in the midst of trial and hardship and major tasks and responsibilities comes from knowing that God is with us. Do not let the word depart from your mouth. The word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Courage and strength are anchored by the word of God. Let's transition now into our Second point, our big idea number two here, Joshua's commands and his confirmation. This will cover verses 10 through 18. And in this next and final section of chapter one, we see Joshua's commands to to the officers. We see his commands to specific tribes. And then we see how the people respond to Joshua. So let me go ahead and read, starting in verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, And will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that your Lord, your God, is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disbelieves your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous." So Joshua is commanding the officers to pass through the camp and to tell the people to prepare their provisions because they are getting ready to pass over the Jordan River and to take possession of the land. One commentator just notices that there's a really clear and well-organized chain of command that we see in this chapter. And, And not much else is kind of stated about the situation, but we are told that they needed to prepare their provisions. And if I'm reading between the lines here, I think Joshua is telling the the officers that they just need to walk through camp and to tell everyone, hey, pack your bags, pack your lunches, pack your tents up, because we are out of here. We are getting out of here in a few days. And anyone who has camped knows how long and how much work packing, uh, how, 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 how much time packing takes, right? I know for me personally, when I'm going on like an overnight camping trip, it takes me more time to pack for that one trip than it would for like a week going somewhere else. 
And then you get to your campsite, you're, you're racing sundown, you're trying to set up your tent, trying to set up camp, and finally you get it all set up, you enjoy the fire and s'mores for a couple hours, you go to bed, you, you probably don't have a great night of sleep, if we're honest, and you wake up and you've got to pack everything up. You've got to take down the tents, you've got to roll the mattress pad and get all the air out, and then you've got to try to fit it back in the bag that it came in, which seems impossible every single time. And you're just like, this is so much work. And don't get me wrong, I do love camping. But we just got to be honest with ourselves that it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And if someone tries to, to tell you, don't, don't be fooled by this, that, that camping is cheap, easy, and relaxing. Those are three things that it's not. Camping gear, crazy expensive. Relaxing, no way. And it takes so much time. And so this is just my interpretation of, of what's going on here. Joshua's like, hey, I'm going to give these guys three days because I know how long it takes to pack up. So that's, that's what's going on here. And so then, we see the officers tell the people to get ready, and then we see another command. But this time, it's to a subset group of the tribes of Israel. And this command was done to ensure that all 12 tribes participated in the conquest of the lands. Because the land that they're currently in, right now, outside of the promised land, it's actually really great for cattle grazing. And so, there's a few tribes, Reuben and Gad, who wanted just to stay in this land. They're like, we don't need to go into the promised land. We like it right here. It's great for our cattle. And so back in uh, Numbers 32, this angers Moses. And he's kind of shocked. Like, you guys want to stay here? And, and the tribes respond. They say, no, no, no. We'll, we'll help you get into the land. We'll, help, we'll send our men of valor. They'll help you fight. But, and we won't, until we've won the victory, we won't come back here. And I think Moses, you know, he thinks about it, and he, he agrees to the compromise. He agrees. And so the reason that these sp- tribes are given special attention here is just to ensure that they remember their promise, that they are going to go in the land. They're going to send their men to help. They wanted to make sure everybody was included in this conquest. And another thing worth commenting on here in this section is God's promise to give them a place of rest. And rest is similar to shalom. It's similar to, to an idea of well-being and, and, and peace. One commentator says that rest in this sense suggests freedom from threats, the enjoyment of one's inheritance, security within the borders of the land, and a state of all-around well-being. So this idea of rest, this theme, we see it throughout the book of Joshua, and then we see it in the New Testament. We see it specifically in the book of Hebrews. And we see that this rest is expanded to include a spiritual rest, a salvation. And it's attainable through our union with Christ. It also points us to a future day of total and complete rest. And we don't have enough time to to really chase down this theme. I think we will get to it in in a later chapter. Um, But I just want to stop and, and just ask you, how well do you do at resting? In a, in a biblical rest, a Sabbath rest, not, not binge-watching Netflix or watching tons of sports, a biblical Sabbath rest, an intentional time to, to let God rule and work in your heart, an intentional time to, to just rest in the presence of God, a, a time to stop working, a time to reflect on Christ. I know for me this is really hard to do, I get really antsy when I'm not uh, doing something or, or being productive, so to speak. Uh, and, and Madison uh, has challenged me uh, to, to take Sabbath rest more seriously. 
And so it's been a good reminder to see here in Joshua that, that I should take Sabbath rest seriously. Uh, Jesus invites us into God's rest. So in these last few verses here, 16 through 18, we see how Israel responds to Joshua. They say, All that you have commanded we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. And my first thought when I read that is, wait, did you guys really obey Moses in all things? Like, I seem to remember a time when he went up to the mountains and you guys made a golden calf and started to worship him. I, I think he specifically told you not to do that. Like, I was confused here, but I think it's them just showing their resolve to really trust and, and pledge their loyalty and allegiance to Joshua. This is confirmation of their new leader. This is the leadership changeover. And so, chapter 1 ends. And after chapter 1, we are, we are left to wonder, will Israel obey Joshua? Uh, more importantly, will Israel obey the Lord? And then we're hoping and we're wondering, is Israel going to conquer the land? Are they going to take the lands? And as we've seen, land is going to be a major theme. And we will continue to see God's faithfulness to Abraham. And this is an important step in redemptive history. And I've heard some commentators even say that the idea and the theme of land goes further back than the covenant God made with Abraham. It actually goes back to the beginning. When God created the world, when he created the first man, Adam, and placed him in the garden a physical location. He was placed in the garden. It's here the idea of land starts to develop. And he gave Adam a wife, Eve, and they were to, to dwell in the presence of the Lord. And then God invites them into partnership with himself to, to, to cultivate the land, to multiply, and to fill the earth with image bearers of God, all while enjoying the presence of God. This was a beautiful design. It's how God intended things to go. But as the story goes, that didn't last long. Adam and Eve turn from God. They would rather be their own gods. They sin against God, the one who created them, the one who gave them their worth and value and dignity. And because of their disobedience, through Adam's disobedience, God curses them, and he banishes them from the land. He sends them east of Eden, away from the presence of God. And we all follow in their footsteps as we turn from God, as we rebel, as we want to make our own way, we want to be our own person, we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We follow in the wake and the footsteps of Adam and Eve. But since the fall of humanity, God has been unfolding this redemptive story that culminates with humanity once again dwelling in the presence of the Lord, dwelling in the land, being in the garden. You see, in Exodus, we see Moses emerge as a faithful leader. To, to lead Israel out of slavery and captivity to, to, the, to, the, to Israel, to, to Egypt. And so we're, we're left wondering, like, is Moses going to be the one to save us? Is he going to be the one to restore us? And we see Moses, he, he, he disobeys God, he fails, he actually dies outside of the promised land. And then Joshua arises 
and we get excited again. Is Joshua going to be the one to save us? And it's no coincidence that Israel is positioned outside of the promised land on the east side. They are east of the Jordan River. You see, to be in the east is to be away from the presence of God, to be under his judgment and curse. We saw this with Adam and Eve as they're banished east of the Garden of Eden. And then we see this in Genesis chapter 4. We see Cain, quote, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. And so although Joshua was one of the greatest leaders in Israel, he was not the one who was going to save them from their sin. The following book, Judges, goes on to show the depth and the wickedness of humanity. But throughout history, in acts of mercy, God allows Israel to experience his presence. We see this through the institution of the tabernacles. We see this through the construction of the temple. The temple is actually constructed to model the Garden of Eden. It was here that God's presence was to dwell. But time and time and time and time again, Israel fails to obey God. And because of this, God removes his presence from Israel and the Old Testament ends. And then hundreds of years go by, and finally there is a spark of hope. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is born. And in John chapter 1, we see the beginning of God dwelling again with his people. We see that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Joshua was a type of Christ. He was to foreshadow Christ. In the Hebrew and Greek languages, they actually share the same name. It shows the tie between the two. Joshua did lead Israel to a certain kind of salvation, a salvation and a victory over the Canaanites and the enemies, but he failed to secure a salvation from their sin and death. It is Jesus who is the one who is going to bring us from sin and death back to the presence of God. Jesus is the new Joshua. He is he who's going to lead us back to the land, back to the heavenly city. Jesus came to restore sinners to a holy and a righteous and a good and a just God. He did not fail like Abraham or Moses or all of the judges or all of the kings. He succeeded in everything. Israel failed to obey the law. Jesus delighted in the law. He upheld its every word. He fulfilled its every command. Jesus lived a sinless life. He went to the cross to pay for our sins. He took the penalty that we deserved. And after Jesus' death on the third day when he's raised from the dead, it shows his victory over sin and death. He has triumphed over the grave. The just punishment for sin has been paid. And before Jesus ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he gives us the great commission to go, therefore, and to make disciples. And what is the last thing Jesus says in Matthew 28? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Does that sound familiar? Just as 
God told Joshua that he was with him, so now Jesus tells us that he will be with us. Always. God has gone before us, and God is with us. And when Jesus does ascend to heaven, what follows at Pentecost? God sends the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Just like Jesus told us in John chapter 14, when Jesus tells his disciples that the Father will send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, a helper who dwells with you and in you. In effect, this makes our bodies temples of the presence of God. The promise that God is before you, that God is with you, and that God is in you is freely offered to anybody who would turn from their sin and follow the Lord Jesus. I urge you, if, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, not the leader of your life, if you are east of Eden, if you are under God's judgment, away from his presence, today is a day of salvation. You can repent of your sins and turn and follow the Lord Jesus and believe in him and you will be saved and God will be with you always. You see, the secret to Joshua's success was that God was with him. God promised to be with Joshua in a personal way, just as he was with Adam and Eve in a personal way. And Joshua's success, for him, it looked like conquering a morally corrupt Canaanite nation by the sword. But for us, on this side of the cross, success for the Christian, looks a little bit different. We don't conquer people through the sword. We conquer through love. Paul tells us in Romans that love is the fulfillment of the law. And in Galatians, Paul says that the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor. And Jesus gave us a new command in John 13 to love one another just as I have loved you. Success for the Christian is walking in obedience to this command. Just as Joshua was obedient to the law, so Christians can be obedient to the law through love. Because God is in us. We are spirit-filled Christians. And what is the fruit of the spirit? Love. Thus, love fulfills the law. Success for the Christian is obedience to the Great Commission to make disciples. Success is taking the gospel to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Success for the Christian is preaching the gospel no matter what the cost is. Our courage is rooted in the reality that God is with us. Let the opening chapter of Joshua stir inside of you an untamable passion to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to be strong and courageous to the glory of God. And remember Jesus' words, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the example of obedience we see in Joshua, the leader that he was. We understand that Joshua's strength and courage did not come from himself, but it came from a, a firm conviction, a confidence that he knew that, God, you were with him. And we can have that same confidence. Jesus tells us that we, he is with us until the end of the age. 
that gives us confidence, that gives us strength and courage to then live out the great commission to make disciples of all nations, to teach all that you have commanded, to love our neighbor. So let's pray that we would leave here changed, that we would have a stronger conviction to, to preach the gospel and to make disciples, that we would be strong and courageous, not trusting in our own ability or our own capabilities or our own moral grit and strength, but trusting and leaning upon you. Jesus, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. We trust you. We want to follow you with our lives. We ask all this in your victorious name, King Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we respond in worship.